as our practice deepens, we get more and more a sense of the impermanence, of the fleetingness of all our experience. And with that, of the impermanence of our life, of ourself, and of the world around us. Impermanence is a very predominant characteristic of life, and thus awareness of it is really essential. To the Buddha, this seemed so important that he mentioned it in the very last sentence that he spoke at the very end of his life, supposed to be the last thing he said altogether, was something to this effect. All things are impermanent. Realize your own freedom through mindfulness. Now here in Nichit we're working mostly on the level of direct perception, direct experience, through mindfulness, through direct, bare observation, being in touch, being in contact with what is. And it's the most essential work to directly see, see for oneself, experience the ongoing, changing nature of things, the impermanent nature of things. So that it's not just an idea or an opinion we have about life, but that we see it's a truth that is felt. It is this experience which can deeply transform our hearts and minds. And yet, as human beings, we will be functioning most of our life on a conceptual level on the level of thinking. And thus, thinking has tremendous power in our life, as we all know. And even most of those who are seeing the fleetingness in very deep, really deep ways in retreat will still predominantly function on the level of concept and thought in the world outside of retreat. And thus, be prone to be caught in their all habitual tendencies of viewing things, beings, as lasting and as solid, as not changing so much. Whenever our viewing of the world, our thinking, is not in accordance with reality, when we perceive reality in a mistaken way, it means difficulties, trouble, disharmony. So changing our habits, our habitual ways of viewing life is really crucial, also on the level of thinking. Both Christina and I spoke about the importance of reflection, of just taking some time thinking about things, on the preciousness of the situation we have. To reflect on this maybe once a day for two, three minutes on change and on impermanence, on the powerful effects of our actions, karma. So tonight, we'll think about, we'll reflect, we'll contemplate the reality of life, impermanence, 
and death. In our Western culture, it's often seen to be something negative to really openly look at death. Sometimes it's seen as being morbid, at least weird. We're brought up not to look at it. I think I was 20 when I first saw, first ever in my life, saw a dead body. My grandmother, she was in some specially arranged thing, quite removed behind glass, sort of made up. We beautify and dress up the corpses. That's strange. It's not done in older cultures. Put a little rouge, put a little makeup, maybe it works, make them smile a little. As if they were going to a party. Now do some sort of guided meditation, talk guided meditation, and if you wish, you can go along and contemplate those images and illustrations I'll use. It's illustrations and parts from text that can help us to get into imagining the situations so that we get into the mood or we get a feel of it because it's so difficult to imagine that this really has something to do with us personally. It's very often done in the Tibetan tradition. It's actually done at the beginning of almost every teaching that they give. I don't think I've ever received a teaching without them starting to speak about that first. And sometimes if it's a teaching they think it's a little above, uh, or they thought it was a little above our heads, they would say, sure, we'll teach you, and then they'll teach like eight days on impermanence and the preciousness, and then the last day for half an hour they teach the thing we actually asked for, like Mahamudra or Dzogchen or something that sounded really grand. So in many traditions actually, it's very much suggested that we reflect on impermanence and death at least once every day. We could perhaps start by reflecting on the changing nature of the universe. Innumerable stars and planets, like ours, whole solar systems coming into being, perhaps gigantic fusions or explosions of entire galaxies that take place, being born, expanding at the speed of light through infinite space, moving, changing through eons to end up being destroyed, disappearing and ending. Buddhist texts speak of eons and eons of world cycles that repeat themselves over and over again. Like a gigantic stage for this play of impermanence. <coughs> then we may reflect on the change of seasons on the earth. The plants and flowers are shooting, sprouting, growing and blooming and blossoming with the arrival of spring. That's followed by the warmth and the lushness and the fertility 
of summer with all the birds that have returned from Africa with the richness of colors the ripening of fruits and crops and that's followed by the colder winds of fall the decaying, the withering the falling and dying of plants and leaves and then comes the frost, the cold, the freezing, the snow covering it all life retreating, ending and then starting it all over again again spring and again it gets warm in summer and again it falls and again winter sometimes I think especially in retreats it feels to me like you know days and nights go by like every 15 minutes breakfast comes around I don't know if you ever have had that feeling Sometimes it almost seems the same with the seasons, you know, like you look up and it's spring and the next time you look up it's fall and then you look up again and it's winter. It's like, you know, this troposcope lights go like this, day, night, day, night, day, night, spring, winter, summer. It's so fast and it changes so rapidly. Seeing this creates a vivid context for looking at our own lives. But before we do this, I'd like to make a point. This reflection isn't done in order to make us feel pessimistic, depressed, or doomed. And it can do that if we understand, if we take it in a, in a unfortunate way. It's really a certain danger here with that. And I think generally, maybe that's again a Western thing. Maybe it has to do with our, with the relationship of our culture with death. It being seen as something somber, as a rather, or only a depressing affair. It's not like that for everybody, and maybe we can turn that around. A few years ago, um, Shan Salzburg and I went to a nearby city from the center we're teaching at in Massachusetts. Listening to the teachings of a Tibetan Lama who came as a, a guest speaker there. And uh, one of the things that stood out for me was that this Lama went on talking about death for quite a while. I talked about many other things, but also about death. And he spoke, you know, about bodies, how they eventually get destroyed, you know, either by fire or by decomposition or he said, as we do it in Tibet, there's not much wood, and the earth is often very hard. And actually, it would be a shame to waste bodies. We feed them to the vultures, you know, and we you know, it's great. You know, we carry them out in the wilderness where the vultures are, and, you know, you cut them up, and it's quite hard work, you know. And he said, and they're waiting there, you know, they'll love it. And, you know, and you feed everything, and they're coming, and they're really having fun. And he was, you know, there was no, I don't know, there was such a different sense of him telling that, you know, like, I was really debating upstairs whether I should tell it even, you know, so he said, and you know what? They really love the brain, and they're way to the end, you know, they know now they're getting the brain. <laughs> So he kept on laughing, you know, about uh, how strange life was and how bodies are something really strange, you know, they sort of fall apart at the end. Anyway, so coming to terms with death and impermanence 
is really or is meant to be about making us relax and let go and gain perspective on something that is not really ours so much that is definitely out of control this body this life of ours perspective on the fact that we're just here for a visit really I don't mean Gaia House also Gaia House (laughs) this place here this planet in the last century, a tourist from the States visited the famous uh, Polish rabbi Hafez Hayim. And the tourist was astonished to see that the rabbi's home was only a simple room filled with some books, and the only furniture was a table and a bench. So I said, Rabbi, where's the furniture? Rabbi Hafez replied, Where's yours? I said, Mine? But I'm only a visitor here. I said, So am I the rabbi. What is really powerful in a way, when we become accustomed to think in terms of impermanence, to actually be very aware, you know, very awake in that sense, is that wherever we look throughout the day, we'll sort of get confirmation, we'll see the hints and clues that it's actually like that. While if you're not trained at all, we sort of see a fixed world around us. You know, with relationships that are going to last forever, people that will be around us forever. So we can, it doesn't matter how we, we meet them, how we are with them, because they're going to be there for a million years. You know, and I'm going to be there for a million years, and you know, the place we're in will be the same forever. Meeting all that with a very acute sense of impermanence changes a lot of, of our ways of being. Knowing that all things arise, knowing that all things disappear. Looking at our life, at our very life, from that angle, from that perspective, can be very powerful, very transforming, if also sometimes a little shocking. What happens once we're born? We grow up, and then we do a number of very important things and as we do them we get older and we keep on doing very important things where are we going? have you noticed? it's very clear there's one direction we're going and it's clear there's one end we don't know which way we go until that point but that point is very definite and very clear we're continuously going towards death like a one-way traffic road not allowed to turn and it passes very quickly real calm the Zen monk wrote man's months pass days pile up like one intoxicated dream an old man's eyes to see clearly the direction in which our life is going we're given Similes from discourses of the Buddha, from sutras, to think about, to take into our being. One illustration the Buddha gave, 
Just as an arrow shot by a skillful archer, as soon as he has pulled the string, does not wait but quickly reaches its target, so also is the life of humans. So also is our own life. There's no moment of hesitation. You think of the arrow, you know, there's no pausing. There's no way to turn around. Another text says, this life, like a current, like the current of a great river, never turning back, it moves on. With every breath we take, with every step we make, we're drawing closer to death. So another one, kind of, I'll just read it to you. It's Suzuki Roshi who puts it enormously bluntly. He says, life is like stepping onto a boat which is about to sail out to sea and sink. <laughs> and another text says, it's just as pris a prisoner being led to a place of execution. If every step comes near to death, so also is this life of humans. The great Tibetan yogi Milarepa likens the approach of death to the shadow at sunset. We used to do this as a game as kids in the mountains. It's more visible in the mountains than in the plains. We'd stand on a hillside, you know, on a sloping hillside, and wait until the sun would hit the horizon on the other side and start sort of going down. And as the sun does that, the shadows start coming up the slope. And for a while you can run. It's not too steep, but not too flat. You know, you can run, run quite a while. And the shadow is behind you. But no matter how, how fast you run, no matter what you do, it's going to take you over. So that aspect becomes quite clear where we're going. Then the question is brought up. It's kind of like, you know, you look at one thing and then there's a clear seeing and a conviction. Okay, there's death will happen. And then it's sort of looking our way, you know, what our ways out are. And the next question that's brought up is, could there be anyone who might not have to die? I mean, not normally, but who knows, right? Perhaps. They read all those incredible stories. Of course, we know the answer, but we're asked to just think about it for a moment. How about someone like the Buddha, who had the deepest insight and wisdom, and also the greatest power human beings can possibly develop? It's said that uh, Ananda missed asking him to stay for another 20 years because he could have decided to stay on. But even if he had stayed 100 years, it would still be 2,500 years now that he's gone. The great yogis in Mahasiddhas, like one of the disciples of the Buddha, Mogoyana, had all the psychic powers. He had 
enormous, incredible powers. He's gone. Naropa, Tilopa, Milarepa. There's some fantastic stories about their deaths. It's said that Milarepa, after he had passed away, was seen simultaneously by many of his disciples in the different caves where he had been meditating so during his life. And the skies were filled with rainbows. About Huineng, the sixth Chinese Zen patriarch, it is said that after he had passed away, his body never decayed for centuries. And I think it's actually still around. I think it can be seen somewhere in China. And yet, maybe the body is there, but Huineng is gone. They're all gone. And um, I've seen in my own mind, you know, know very clearly what the situation is, that sometimes there's this thought, you know, maybe, maybe if you meditate well enough, you know, and you really get enlightened enough, and, you know, we do all the right thing, you know, the right food, and the right you know, diet, and everything you can do. Who knows? To look at all the ways the mind sort of just diffuses the fact. It's not that we don't know it, but we can sort of little cheat a little. In a hundred years from now, not a single person that we know now will be alive. I just visited some friends two days ago. at this cute little baby. She'll be gone too. If not in hundred, in hundred ten. Everybody we know now will be gone. There'll be plenty of others. I guess. I don't know. To say it in the words of Tim Morrison of The Doors, no one gets out of here alive. <laughs> so we got pretty certain that there is no way out. But it won't happen for a while, right? Nagashuna exclaimed, and I read this before, Life is so fragile, more so than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How truly astonishing are those who think that after an outbreath they will surely breathe in again, or that they'll awake again after a night's sleep. There is not the slightest guarantee that we will. This is from the book Unforgettable Fire about the bomb in Hiroshima. It's that beautiful, nice summer day on August 8th in 1945. The morning started with a cloudless blue sky. This is a person who was there. I got on a streetcar on the Kabe line at about 10 minutes past 8. The door was open and I was standing there. As I heard, as I heard the, start, the starting bell ring, I saw a silver flash and heard an explosion. Everything was instantly covered with a pink and blue bright light. The light was very hot and painful. Innumerable pieces of glass and metal scattered and attacked me on my head, face and back. I was pushed from behind by a strong force and fell down. The next moment, everything went dark. Fortunately, there's a little less chance these days that this could happen right now. 
but we still don't know. And there is no certainty in any way whatsoever. Imagine if we knew we'd only have three more minutes. What would be important in those three minutes? Here's what Don Juan suggests to Carlos. You don't have time, my friend. That is the misfortune of human beings. Focus your attention on your death. Focus your attention on the fact that you don't have time and let your acts flow accordingly. Let each of your acts be your last battle on earth. Only under those conditions will your acts have their rightful power. Otherwise, there will be for as long as you live the acts of a timid person. That's fine if you're going to be immortal, but if you're going to die, there's no time for timidity. It soothes you while everything is sort of asleep, is at a lull. But then the awesome, mysterious world will open its mouth for you, as it will open for all of us. And then you will realize that your sure ways are not sure at all. Being timid prevents us from examining our lots as human beings. Years ago, a friend of mine worked in an emergency morgue of a city hospital for a while. And he said they brought in the bodies of people who had just died. Who just died. And he said what amazed him most was not so much even that all these people had actually died, but how there was absolutely no rule on who they were gonna, they were gonna bring in, on who dies. It wasn't, you know, sort of an age thing, you know, first the oldest person and then the next. He said, um, in the morning they, bring, they brought in an elderly man who had died over in the hospital. At 10, they brought a young man, strong and healthy looking, even as he, as he was lying there dead. And he said, actually, he went there looking at him, and he was so astonishing. Because he said, even as he was lying there dead, it seemed like he was healthy and vigorous. He had no clue why he had died. He was about 25. At noon, they brought a woman in her 40s, her handbag and shopping bags with her. Obviously, she'd been about doing her shopping to go home and prepare lunch, perhaps for her family, run over by a car. In the afternoon, they brought in twin babies, just newly born, too small to live, perhaps. Again, he didn't know why they hadn't survived. So we don't know when it's going to be. And yet, so often we live as if it were forever. Why does our mind do this? It's hard to, to know really. Maybe fear of pain, fear of the unknown, probably, terror, having to face the ultimate loneliness or whatever we imagine it would be. Or perhaps it's just inconceivable. Or perhaps just 
the habit of being unaware of that, of those facts. Certainly an interesting part in working with the awareness of death to watch and to feel out carefully what it is that keeps us from opening to it. In this traditional contemplation, once we're quite clear that death is certain and that it can come any time, we're asked to visualize a supposed situation of our own death. And again, if you wish, you can try to actually do it now or any time as you lie down in your bed and you're not quite asleep. Imagine lying on, on one's bed stricken with a deadly disease. All strength has left our body. We can't sit up anymore. We like to sit up, but we can't. Food has become tasteless. Our face colorless and parched and gray. We feel pain and feel helpless, unable to endure the suffering. The medicine does not take, has not any effect anymore and the doctors are whispering to our relatives and shaking their heads. Friends and relatives look very serious and they only speak very softly, they whisper to each other. Breathing is difficult and raspy and we know our time has come. And the reflection then continues through the actual experience of dying. And this is according to the Tibetan tradition said that the different that the different physical elements of which our body is made up they will fail one after the other and will experience different signs first the earth element fails we lose the ability to move our limbs move our body it's the inner sign of a mirage then the water element starts to fail our body and skin dries out. There's a kind of seeing, inner seeing of smoke. The next, the fire element that fails. And the heat starts to leave our body, getting cold. Not inner signs of fire, sparks. At the end, the air element fails. The breathing accelerates. Inhalations become shallower and exhalation gets longer until finally our breath stops after a long exhalation. Then we'll be declared dead. A few stages supposedly the mind is going through. But after this, eventually, according to the tradition, the consciousness will leave the body and driven by the forces of karma will take a new birth. That means driven by the forces that we have most strengthened in our life. Driven by those qualities of mind that we have most practiced. That's what's going to determine the direction that we're going to go and there's no freedom whatsoever in this stage all will depend on the way we have been living this life. The Sufi Ibrahim Ibn 
Adam was asked, What befell you that you quit your kingdom? Apparently it's been a king in his life first. He said, I was seated on my throne one day, he recalled. A mirror was held up before me. I looked into that mirror and saw that my lodging was the tomb and therein was no familiar friend. I saw a long journey ahead of me and I had no provision. I saw a just judge and I had no defense and I became disgusted with my kingship. And again, of course, I don't think it matters what we do or which role we fulfill or live in our life, but how we do it. So the question comes, why would we do such reflections? Doesn't look like we're all radiating, beaming and having much fun, isn't it? Why do it? Why bother? First, we may perhaps ask ourselves why it is a problem to live in a way of closing up and blocking out such essential facts of life, like death is one. And what comes to mind is that when we block ourselves to the difficulties and the terror in life, we automatically will have our hearts blocked and closed to the joy and the wonderment and the mysteries of life too. Somehow not possible that in one way we stay blocked, and then at the same time we hope to be open for the other aspect of the same living reality. There won't be much depth in our life. We'll be comfortably numb, or perhaps uncomfortably numb. If we choose to develop that kind of awareness of death and of impermanence, a whole range of helpful and powerful qualities are generated. Traditional Buddhism often uses the kind of urgency that might come from this kind of reflection to get oneself into practice, to enter the Dharma, to take refuge, used as a skillful means. And I think it's very important that if we do it, that we actually then take the next step and not just frighten ourselves, but realize, okay, there is a refuge. There is something that we can do that will make a difference. It's not that we're not going to die, but there's something we can do with this life that makes a total, complete difference. Tibetans use it often when they do long retreats. Every morning, first thing, they reflect on impermanence as a means to get motivated for practice, to clarify priorities. What else? Death can be an advisor. This is Don Juan speaking again. Death is our constant companion. It is always to your left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you. It always will, until the day it taps you. How can anyone feel so important when we know that death is stalking us? And then Carlos says, I told him that I believed him and that he had not to press the issue any further because I was terrified. He replied that the issue of our death was never pressed far enough. You're full of crap, he exclaimed. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. 
Whenever you feel that everything is going wrong, turn to your desk and ask if that is so. And your desk will tell you that you're wrong. Your desk will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. And thus you'll drop the curt pettiness that belongs to people that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Putting things into their proper perspective, clarifying our priorities, cutting out some of the stuff that we don't really need. Sometimes um, lamas, Tibetan teachers, as they go up to their high seats, to their thrones, to give a talk or instructions or something, they snap their fingers. And it's a kind of traditional thing that they do to bring up their awareness of impermanence and of death, to cut their pride and conceit that might come up from sitting up on high thrones or sitting up front on low thrones. Can cut conceit cast our preoccupation with our own importance in many ways. Another factor or quality that is developed is insight. The understanding of impermanence brings about correct understanding, which is an important aspect of this path, of the Eightfold Path the Buddha taught. And if we get it clear on a conceptual level, on that level, which is the level of everyday life, it will be very helpful, it will be very effective. We recognize the true nature of life, we see its non-substantiality. Seeing this and tuning into more harmony with that reality, it is easier to let go. Just being aware of how things change constantly. Sometimes we don't want to let go. And we don't want to let go because we somehow think we can keep it for a, a lot longer. If we know how fast things change anyway, we're practically aware right then that this is about to pass away. That is why we're holding on so hard and we let go much easier and it's such a relief it's much more peace and we'll be much more at ease each time we do let go much quicker so it brings detachment certain things will lose importance the shift of emphasis in our life will be less preoccupied with having and with getting and with becoming but instead give more care to the quality of our being. Awareness of death brings energy. We really want to live in the best way possible, isn't it? Since we realize that it is going to be all too short. We won't have that much time. Will that make the right effort? Will be more impeccable in a way that is caring in a way that's compassionate and yet light. The list of good qualities that are being developed could go on. One aspect I find interesting is that it brings us right into the present. 
when we are in touch with the immediacy, with the fact that things instantly disappear and we could die any moment, we're not going to think about the distant past so much or what we would do in 10, 20 years. It somehow cuts off a lot of that and brings us right here. It also makes us very alive. And it brings us to a much deeper appreciation of this very moment of life itself right now. We awaken to the beauty of now, to the unique, uniqueness and preciousness of every moment. We don't know how many we can have of those. And no matter how many we're going to have, actually we only have this one ever. There'll never be another one. And there'll be a sense of preciousness and of appreciation regardless of whether it is nice and pleasant or difficult and unpleasant. Simply because it's being alive. This is what we have right now. This is what is happening right now. So perhaps with that sense of appreciation our life can, our practice can become somewhat more something like an ongoing celebration. I'd like to read this from Ram Das. Many years ago he, he went visiting death row at San Quentin prison. There were about 20, 35 men all sentenced to death. We're waiting for the Federal Supreme Court to confirm or invalidate their sentences. He writes, As I went up to each cell, there were only very few who did not receive me openly, clearly, quietly, and consciously. The feeling I had was that I was visiting a monastery for these men who are facing death have been pushed into a situation that has cut through their melodrama and they're right here. We sat together sending out love and peace to all sentient beings in the universe. There was light pouring out of these people's eyes. We got so open that I was really able to say without any one of them freaking out, I can't tell whether what's happened to you is a blessing or a curse, for there's very little chance that we would be sharing this higher space otherwise. It's also a little like walking in the mountains on a narrow path along a deep, deep precipice. Those who have done that know it doesn't take a special effort to be present. You know, like it's really narrow. We're not lost, you know, like I wonder what I should have for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> right here, all along, you know, and then it gets white again, and then perhaps off we go. In the same way, the awareness of our impending death gets us right here. And the moment becomes fresh, new, precious, and alive. And from that, openness, appreciation, and love will grow. And to close, I'd like to read some more out of Castaneda's book. 
this part is not so much advice, then it is beautifully describing the mood of a warrior who has lived his or her life fully. Every warrior has a place to die, Don Juan said in a soft voice. One day when their time on earth is up and they feel the tap of their death on their left shoulder, their spirit, which is always ready, flies to the place of their preference. There the warrior dance to their death. If the dying warriors have limited power, their dance is short. If their power is grandiose, their dance is magnificent. Death must stop to witness their last stand on earth. Don Juan's words made me shiver. The quietness, the twilight, the magnificent scenery, all seem to have been placed here as props for the image of a warrior's last dance of power. You will dance to your death here on this hilltop at the end of the day, and in your last dance you will tell of your struggles, of the battles you have won and those you have lost. You will tell of your joys and bewilderment. Your dance will tell about the secrets and the marvels you have stored, and your death will sit there and watch you. The dying sun will glow on you without burning as it has done today. The wind will be soft and mellow and your hilltop will tremble. As you reach the end of your dance, you will look at the sun, for you will never see it again in waking or in dreaming. And then your death will point to the south, to the vastness. So for us too, can dance at every moment with commitment, with love, with great care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate